0: Good morning. I extend a welcome to everyone as well. Uh, We're going to read, though we're dealing with the Lord's Prayer, we're going to read from Psalm 33. And if you want to use the Bible that's in the chair or pew, you can find this Psalm on page 463 in that Bible. The reason I want to read Psalm 33 is that We're dealing with that phrase, who art in heaven. Ryan uh, spoke about our father last week, and we're going to talk about who art in heaven. And I think Psalm 33 is one of many, many places, but an excellent place to go to say, here is some of the description of what it means that he is in heaven above all powers and that he rules all things. Here's a picture of his sovereignty in this world. This is a good background then for us <clears throat> to delve into who art in heaven. Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Four, the the, uh, word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses." Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds... The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those whose hope is his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. O Lord, bless us as we consider this portion of your word that exalts you as the sovereign over all things. And Lord, may it enable us all the more to approach you in prayer with expectation and joy. Oh Lord, bless us for your glory, we pray. Amen. So as we've spoken about the Lord's Prayer, we've talked about how it is an outline for prayer. It's not simply to repeat the prayer, but... To use it as an outline, I think of it as a pathway for prayer, laying out the pathways of prayer. But it's really more than that in a sense that it is laying before us what our passions in prayer should be. Even what our passions in life should be. What we should be longing for in our very life as believers. And how it's epitomized in what the Lord Jesus says to bring before him in prayer. So, in a way, this is a description of the Christian life. It's a description of our life with God. And there's this order to the prayer, right? That in the first three requests, it's about God's name and his kingdom and his will. And then we turn under the umbrella of seeking for God to lay before him our physical needs and our relationships and forgiveness and our warfare with sin. So, what a tremendous, uh, not only statement of our passion in prayer, but what are the passions of our lives. So, we've divided up this first phrase. I'm, I'm not entirely happy with the confession statement of a preface You know, because you kind of can skip the preface and get to the rest of it, right? Uh, I think of it as a critical aspect, a critical gateway through which we must pass to pray aright. And as it is stated in the the answer to the question, our Father who is in heaven shows that he is willing, he's our Father, and he's able. He's in heaven. He's willing and he's able. And those two simple things must be in our hearts as we even begin to pray to God. that He is willing and he is able. So in the first place, as you see in your outline in the bulletin, this means that he is in heaven to trust God to rule all things. Now, in heaven is not about geography, right? Oh, Father, far, far away, way up there while we are way down here. That's not the meaning there, right? Uh, We sometimes say, you know, my prayers didn't even get past the ceiling. Well, that's a good thing because God's closer to you than the ceiling, you know, really. He is intimate with you. They don't have to go somewhere, you see. That's not what this is about, the distance, describing the distance of God it's a way to describe, well, let me put it this way. Uh, John Frame talks about these two words, transcendence and immanence. Transcendent God overall, and then his imminence or his presence. And sometimes people pit those two things against each other. Like they say, He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. But really, you'd put it this way: He's transcendent. Therefore, he's imminent, okay? Nothing can hold him back. Nothing can block him. There's no obstacle. He is over all, therefore, he pervades everything. And nothing controls him, and he controls all. It's really set before us beautifully in the way Jesus is described in Ephesians 1 because now God exercises his sovereignty and his rule over the world through Jesus Christ. Who we read there has been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God where he is now over all things. But here's the the interesting phrase at the end of that description of Jesus. It says, he fills everything in every way. This means his sovereignty pervades the whole of creation and everything in it. So when you say our father in heaven you're saying, Our Father, because you are in heaven, because you're exalted over all powers of the world, you pervade everything in your sovereignty. Okay? He's seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, his sovereign influence pervades every square inch of this world in every way. Now, that's an important thing when you come to him to pray, to think, He can do anything He wants, and nothing can stop Him. And that begins to, you begin to think, what is He promised that He will do that will not be stopped? Because He's promised to do it, and nothing can hinder Him. Because He is in heaven, He's exalted over all, and His sovereignty pervades everything. I think one of the ways to rehearse before you pray or The beginning of prayer. See, I I see our Father who art in heaven is in a way that we sometimes outline prayer as A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. I kind of like adoration and thanksgiving grouped up to start with and then to fill up the whole of prayer as you are asking for things. But here's the important thing that adoration and thanksgiving Jesus puts up front recognize all that it means that he's your father. Recognize, soak your heart and soul in all that it means that he's exalted and all-powerful. For me, it's really helpful to rehearse his sovereignty and creation. And it's it helps me to delight in him and be astonished at him and be amazed at him and then to think, That's the God I'm praying to, that God of creation. This God who cares for every item in his universe, every rock, every plant, every creature, every molecule of water, where it's been, where it is, and what he's going to do with it next. That's who I pray to, that all-powerful, glorious God whose sovereignty pervades everything. I really enjoyed an interview in By Faith recently with Tommy McElrath, uh, who's a biology professor at Covenant College, got his PhD uh, from University of Ohio in entomology, right? He's a bug doctor, not like medical, but he is a bug doctor, right? A PhD of of insects. And uh, he's he's talking about uh, beetles, And he says, not the beetles, but beetles. And he says, you know, there are about 4,500 species of mammals. And he says, there are 350,000 species of beetles. Species? Are you kidding me? 350,000 different kinds of beetles, at least what they have found so far right and so he says um if you this turns out like this mathematically if you put all the animals in the world in a metaphorical bag and you started pulling them out one by one every fourth one would be a beetle and i love what he says i think god likes beetles <laughs> and you kind of have to agree and it kind of makes you think Wonder why God likes beetles so much. You know, what is it about a beetle? That's just one aspect of this fascinating God. And you can explore one a day even, or ten a day, and be renewed and astonished at his amazing sovereignty and involvement in this world. His incredible creativity and wisdom and power. That's the God you pray for. Our Father who is in heaven. And that's why in Psalm 33, I love when it says that we're to be in awe of him. Why? He says, because he spoke (laughs) and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All the powers of the earth mean nothing to God because he's going to carry out his plans no matter what. That's the God you need to rehearse and pray to. That's the God who's in heaven. So this first line calls us to pray with hope and expectation with what this God might do, right? Kind of makes this an adventure. Like, I'm coming into the presence of this glorious God of creation. What could happen here? And so I would say... Admire yourself into, I'm not saying admire yourself, but admire your soul into expectation. Adore yourself into joy and hope and even shalom as you pray, as you are thinking of this glorious God. You see, the more passionate and graphic your praise the more passionate and graphic will be your requests to such a God. Admiration of him brings a recalibration in your life, adjusting to expect great things from this God. As you rejoice in him, you will realign with him. And so we have to see him. See Him as He is, not as we make Him out to be. This first line is an all-out attack against our idolatry. This is God, the Father who is in heaven. He's not an unwilling, uncaring, neglectful, incompetent, uninterested God. This first line is a discovery of our idols It is a healing and mending, repair, a rebuilding of a true vision of the glorious Father who is in heaven. It's putting us back together again as to who God really is. And he is a competent, wise God. At least in present day, we can say he is not a blockbuster. He is a Netflix. You get my meaning. You entrust your life to him. And he's not going to land you in bankruptcy. He's going to keep expanding and expanding. <laughs> and who knows what Netflix is going to take over next, right? But you understand, he's far-sighted. He knows what's going on. He knows what's coming down the pike. He knows everything about us. He knows where he is going with us. He knows how he will bring it about. He is in heaven. He is in heaven. And certainly this means, brothers and sisters, that we have to search him out in scripture. We have to recall all that he is and all that he's promised, all that he's done, all that he will do. Every part of scripture in some way bristles with the glory of God that can be brought in prayer to the one who is in heaven. I think of every part of scriptures like those geodes, you know, and you break it open and there are these beautiful crystals that you didn't know were there. It helps me understand the, the psalmist when he says, Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And really more than a geode, it's, it's really more like here's a, a rock with little cracks in it and light is bursting out of it and, that's what the scripture is. Wherever you go, it's just this, this massive rock just waiting for the light of Jesus to break in on you. Those become our fruit, our, the, the food for our prayers. As you open the word, you go in this wild safari into the back country of God's glory. And these stunning outlooks are the nourishment of your praises and the nourishment of your prayers as you discover the exposition of the God who's in heaven, right? That's what scripture is. And so you come and you, ask, you have these, these questions as you begin to pray. What can stand in his way? What great things might this God do in my life? What could his plans be for me? What kind of beauty does this God want to bring in my life? What kind of beauty does he want to bring in our life as a church? What kind of beauty does he want to shine out into a dark world? If he will do this in creation, what will he do, it, do with his people? The God who is in heaven. So we trust God to rule all things. And therefore we pray and with expectancy in this way. So point two, then we expect God to answer prayer. We trust that he rules all things. We we keep rehearsing how he rules all things and believes that he rules all things. And this causes us to expect God to answer prayer. And there's a series of of, uh, healings and great works of Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9. You can go and read it for yourself. But what's interesting is the focus on Christ's ability or his power or his authority and how it's connected to the requests people have. So a leper comes up to him and says, Lord, if you are willing, you are able to make me clean. He says, I am willing. And he cleanses him. That's about his power. You See, just what we're talking about in heaven, powerful, able. That's what this is about. He's able to do things for us. Next person comes along a centurion. He's got a servant. He's sick. And Jesus goes to heal him. He says, no, 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 no. Just say the word. Uh, hey, I've got soldiers under me. I say, go and he goes. I say, come and he comes. I say, do this and he does it. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Jesus marvels at his faith. What is it a faith in? Faith in his authority. Faith in his power. It's the same thing as our father who is in heaven, who's able to do all things. And then he even says, uh, as you have believed, let it be done for you. As you have believed in my authority, let it be done for you. Then it it describes how he calms the storm so he controls the elements. He goes on and casts out a demon or a whole host of demons from a guy in the area of gathering. So his authority and his power and his control. And when a paralytic is let down through the roof and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And say, People say, well, who can forgive sins but God? And he says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. He says, take up your bed and walk. Authority, power, power to do what. We need done. A woman with a discharge for 12 years touches the hem of his garment, expecting his power, and she's healed just like that. Blind men come and say, son of David, have mercy on us. He says, interestingly, using the same word that the leper used, he says, do you think I am able to do this? You see, our father in heaven, in heaven is your challenge do you believe he is able to do this for you do you believe in the god who has absolute authority over all things and that he will truly act on your behalf do we believe in his power do we, is he our father who's in heaven controlling all powers bound by no power and of course bringing his father in uh, the the word father that he's committed to your good if you trust in him. And so Jesus, therefore, in Luke 18, 1, tells his disciples, we ought, you ought, ought, ought always to pray. In fact, the word is you must always pray and never lose heart. Always pray, never lose heart. Interestingly, this word, lose heart, is used also of a warrior who shrinks from his responsibility and acts cowardly. Have you ever thought about the bravery of prayer? The courage of prayer? Prayer is the most difficult human activity you will ever engage in. It will demand everything in your being, and it will only be sustained by the powerful grace of God. It is the greatest human accomplishment in this world that you might be a man or woman or boy or girl, a prayer. But we all, of course are not able to do it. We are only able to do it by God's grace. Well, Jesus, and I'm laying these before you because it's important to see how urgent, how Jesus urges us to continue to pray and the effectiveness of continuing to pray. And you know, many of you, the the parable he gives of this judge, he doesn't care about people, and he doesn't care about God, right? And the widow comes to him, and she wants him to, he, she pleads her case of justice. And he pushes her off, you know, I don't want to bother with you. She won't go away. She pushes her off, she won't go away. Won't go, and finally says, because she's driving me crazy, I will act for her. It's remarkable that God would give this example. And you kind of think, is that what's going to happen? I just have to finally drive God crazy, you know, because he really doesn't care. You see, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. You Take this guy who doesn't care about this woman at all. And because she keeps coming, he finally answers her. And he says, now, take God, who in the full light of the New Testament has given his son to die for you. And as Paul says, if he didn't spare his own son, he will freely give you all things. Now, you pray to him without ceasing. You don't lose heart in praying to this God who loves you so much. He knows your concerns even before you pray. He's so about What's going on in your life? Then he gives you another example. Back in Luke 11. So he says, which one of you, if a friend comes and in the middle of the night and you need three loaves of bread to feed these people and you go to your friend's house down the road and you start knocking on his door and the friend says... Go away! We're all in bed. All the kids and everybody, We're all in bed. We can't. I can't get up and give you anything. Bam, 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 bam. I'm telling you, get up. Bam, bam, bam. You know. Finally, he gets up. So the word used there, he says, is because of his impudence. <laughs> He'll get up and give him what he wants. And this could be translated because of his shameless persistence, his shameless audacity. And Jesus wants us to be shamelessly audacious in our prayers to God. Like the Syrophoenician woman whom I just adore, one of my favorite people, this Apparently, pagan woman, but now she trusts in Christ, and he's in this area of Tyre and Sidon, which is Jezebel's area, right? That's the overtones of this. And this woman comes up, and she she keeps praying that he'll deal with her daughter. and And first, Jesus just ignores her. Finally, his disciples come and says, "You got to do something for her. He's driving us crazy. She's just following us everywhere." And he says, initially. I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. I would put you off, right? But not as much as when she finally kneels before him and says, Lord, will you help me? And he says, it's not good to give to the children, to give to dogs what belongs to the children. Ugh. Was that Jesus that said that? And then she says, oh, Lord but the dogs get the crumbs off the table. And, she said, and then Jesus says, oh, woman, your faith is great. See, she knew. She knew that he could act for her. And she really knew that he would act for her. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. See, She, she pierced through behind to see the true Lord Jesus. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel in the middle of the night. Toward the break of day, the angel says, he realizes he's not going to prevail in this wrestling match. Of course, the angel is God and it's a little curious as to how God taking the form of man is not able to you know wrestle with Jacob. Maybe he was just saying, I'm going to just be a normal man and, and go for it. But then because he can't when in the wrestling match, he touches the socket of Jacob's hip and throws it out of socket. I don't know if any of you have had a so- shoulder dislocation and know this extreme pain. Still, Jacob wouldn't let him go. And so it's daylight and the guy says, let me go. I got I to get out of here. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he changes God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, he who strives with God. He says, because you've prevailed with God. How did he prevail with God? Think of it. How did he prevail? Because he wouldn't leave until he blessed him. Isn't that the same as Jesus saying, continue to pray, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Be like the Syrophoenician woman. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't go away. Be like Jacob. Be the one who strives with God. And, of course, we're going to talk about what this means. Like, does it mean that I will always be healed? Does it mean everything's going to always turn out right? So there is that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, but there's, there are conditions maybe, or or, or God... Why have people been persecuted? Why have they been imprisoned? Why do people have diseases? All these things. And when we get into it more, you're going to see that there are these central prayers about his redemption that, brothers and sisters, you cannot take no for an answer as to his applying his redemption to your life. You just can't. You're a new creation created for good works, He's died so that you would be zealous for good deeds. You can't take no for an answer if you're not growing in a zeal to, to love others. You just say, I'm not going away until I see the redemptive promises and the redemptive actions being fulfilled in my life. That's what it means that he's in heaven. He's able to answer prayer. And Jesus means that things are going to be done. He says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get a Mercedes, right? (laughs) But, But it has to mean something for your life and my life. That spiritual good will flow from us because it is accomplished And it will be applied to us. Finally, and this is our shortest point. Hope to God. Hope in God to order the future. You trust in his sovereignty. You trust that he rules all things. Therefore, you expect him to answer prayer. And this causes you to have great hope in the future. There's a... There's a sign in Kay's, we still call it Kay's mom's house, even though she died a year ago over a year ago. <clears throat> Mama Jean's house, okay. That's her grandmother name. And it's taken from Proverbs 31, and it really grabbed me this trip. And it's describing the woman of Proverbs. Thirty-one, and this is the uh, this is the one translation, and I, I think it's good. It adds a little something, but I think it gets at the heart of it. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. Now, the original just reads, "She laughs at the future," but it's probably right if you're kind of enlarging on the meaning. She laughs because she has no fear of the future. She laughs. And the word laugh has two meanings in the Old Testament. One is celebration, crazy celebration. Like David, almost naked, dancing in front of the ark celebration. That word's used there. David, you know. I won't do the full imitation, but anyway. Anyway. Here's David dancing before the ark so wildly and freely and joyfully, it makes his wife, you know, embarrassed for him. You know, and she calls him on the carpet for it. Celebrate the future because God is in heaven. And the other is it means to mock something, it's used where God. Mocks the wicked when they refuse him, and he says, I will mock you in that final day. It's used quite a bit this way. And there's that element of us mocking, ridiculing the future because it cannot do anything to us because God is in heaven. Do you see it? Have you and I bowed down to the future? Do we worship the future? Are we scared of the future? In the face of everything that's happening in this world or even in this country, does it mean we're, not, we're blind, we're unaware? Yes, we're regrown, as Romans 8 says. All of these things. We're honest and wide open to the gravity of the situation and we are deeply concerned about all of these things. Still, in the end, bottom line, we laugh at the future because the future cannot touch us. And I would couple that statement in Proverbs 31 with 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul, in the light of the resurrection, mocks death. Death. Hey, death. Where's your victory death? Huh? Where's your victory death? You don't got no victory death. Right? Death. You had this big stinger, but it seems to be gone now. You can't sting anything. You see? This riotous joyous laughter in the face of the future why? because my father is in heaven and if you don't haven't yet begun to trust in this God and to trust in his son the Lord Jesus Christ I urge you this God who reigns over all is the God who took upon himself flesh and bore our sins that he might have us forever as his own children, that he might be our father and that as our father, he might rule our lives for all eternity. I urge you to consider this glorious God that he might be your father in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? If it is true that our Father is in heaven, then who can be against us? Lord, may we, with the, that woman in Proverbs 31, that idealized woman, Laugh at the future without fear. And may we, like her, have that strength and dignity of people who can laugh at the future. Not because the future will not bring bad things into our lives physically. But because God rules that future. And God owns the future. And God will use the future as he sees fit. To bring good to our lives. To draw us so that we know him more and more. So that we are like him more and more. So that we manifest his goodness more and more. And nothing can stop that purpose of this father who is in heaven. Amen.